Ave Maria Purissima. Uh, we see uh, that Hawaii had a real scare yesterday. That they had, for 38 minutes they thought they were gonna. There was a ballistic missile coming in. They were gonna get nuked. And I looked through the news, and there were all kinds of comments by people. Only two talked about praying or doing penance to God for their sins. Most of the others were just expressed with shock and alarm. We're all going to die. We always need to be ready to face our Lord. Make sure you keep yourself in the right condition. And should you find yourself not in the right condition, get to confession right away. Don't wait for something like that. We're all going to die. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we'll take a closer look at the first line in today's Gospel. And to do that, we'll follow the scriptural commentary, which was assembled from the works of the Father of the Church by the great Flemish Jesuit, uh, Father Cornelius Lapide. He worked in the late 1500s and early 1600s, and as usual, uh, throughout the sermon, we'll edit, cut, and paste as needed. Cornelius Lapide, quote, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The third day refers to the third day from the visit and conversion of Andrew and Peter. From that day, Jesus began to gather disciples and reveal himself to them. From that point, therefore, John computes this third day in which our Lord plainly manifests himself to them and shows that he is the Messiah by turning water into wine." Close quote. Now Cornelius Lapide, relying largely on the great historian of the church, uh, Cardinal Baronius, as well as St. Epiphanius, is going to connect all this, these events to the calendar. Quote, Here's the sequence of these days in the life of Christ. According to the tradition of the Church and the Fathers, on the Feast of the Epiphany, the day on which 30 years previously the Magi had been led by a star to worship Christ at Bethlehem, our Lord was baptized by John." Close quote. Okay, and so in spite of what some of these modern clowns might claim, according to the tradition of the Church and the Fathers, the Magi actually arrived in Bethlehem on January 6th. And 30, days, 30 years later, on that same day, John the Baptist baptized our Lord in the Jordan. Back to Cornelius Lapide, who will now discuss what happened immediately after our Lord's baptism and exactly when he turned the water into wine. Quote, St. Epiphanius says that the marriage took place on the 60th day from Christ's baptism. After dinner, on the same day that our Lord was baptized by John, the 6th of January, he went into the desert where he fasted for 40 days. This fast began on the 7th of January and ended on the 15th of February. Then he returned to Nazareth where he stayed 15 days. St. Epiphanius says that immediately after this, the 56th day after his baptism, the Jews sent messengers to St. John the Baptist to ask him whether he were the Christ or not. This took place on March 1st. John denied it and said that Jesus is the Christ. The next day, March 2nd, Jesus came to John, 
who pointed him out with his finger, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. On the following day, March 3rd, John repeated this testimony before two of his disciples, one of whom was Andrew. Hence they visited Jesus, and then Andrew brought his brother Peter to Christ. On March 4th, Jesus went into Galilee, where he called Philip. Since this was the second day from the coming of Andrew with his brother Peter to Christ, it was the third day of March 5th when the wedding feast took place. Close quote. Okay, so let's quickly go over that. We've seen that when our Lord had just turned 30 years old, he was baptized on January 6th, and then went out into the desert and fasted for 40 days. After he came back, he spent some time at home at Nazareth. On March 1st, the Jews asked St. John the Baptist if he were the Christ, and he said no. On March 2nd, St. John pointed out our Lord, saying, He said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. On March 3rd, St. John repeated his testimony before St. Andrew and another disciple, and St. Andrew then brought his brother, St. Peter, to Christ. On March 4th, our Lord called St. Philip, and on March 5th, on the 60th day from his baptism, he went to the wedding feast. Now Cornelius Elapidate asks the obvious question, why does the church commemorate the miracle of the turning of the water into wine on the Feast of Epiphany if it actually took place on March 5th? And he answers, according to Baronius, St. Augustine, St. Maximus, and others, the church commemorates the miracle on that day, though it did not actually take place upon it, because the church wished to celebrate on the same Feast of the Epiphany, or Manifestation of Christ, the three miracles by which Christ first made himself manifest to the world. First, the arrival and adoration of the Magi, who were led by a star. Second, the baptism of Christ, when the Father's voice was heard like thunder, this is my beloved Son. And third, the turning of water into wine at Cana. The first of these two, three miracles happened on the same day, that is the 6th of January, whereas the third took place two months later, on March 6th, close quote. Epiphany is a Greek word which means manifestation. So the reason we commemorate all three of these mysteries together is because these are the three miracles by which Christ first manifests himself to the world. And then although we commemorate all this on Epiphany the divine office, the church wants to draw our attention more closely to these mysteries so we have three separate days on which we focus more closely on each. On January 6th, the Feast of Epiphany itself, we focus on the revelation of Christ to the Gentile nations by the visit of the Magi. On the octave of the Epiphany, which was yesterday, January 13th, we focus on the baptism of the Lord. And the second Sunday after Epiphany, we focus on the miracle of water turning into wine. Now Cornelius Elapidae turns the question, whose marriage was this? And who was the bridegroom? I quote, The bridegroom at this marriage was Apostle Simon, sometimes always also known as Simon the Zealot, because as soon as he had seen the miracle of the water turning into wine, he became a zealous follower of Christ. And the place where the marriage was celebrated was adorned and ennobled by a famous church built there by St. Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great. As soon as Simon had seen this miracle of Christ at his wedding, he bade farewell to his bride in the world and followed him, he was chosen to be one of the twelve apostles. This was the reason why Christ came to this wedding, by coming and indeed honored marriage, 
But by calling him to himself, he declared that celibacy and apostolate are more excellent than marriage. Close quote. And the mother of Jesus was there, quote. She was invited as a friend by those who were celebrating the marriage. There is no mention of Joseph in this place, nor subsequently, for he was now dead. Close quote. Thus Cornelius Elapide. So we've taken a closer look at his commentary on one line from inspired and inerrant word of God. On the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. But there's one term in this line from the Holy Gospels that Cornelius Elapide didn't bother to explain. In fact, it would have never even occurred to him that it might need an explanation. But in this present darkness, the confusion about the true meaning of this term is so deep and so widespread that we just can't glide by it without an explanation. And that term is, of course, marriage. Marriage. What exactly is marriage? Now, before we turn to the correct definition, by way of contrast, we'll take a quick look at some incorrect definitions. And we'll start by looking at a definition used in the Perry versus Schwarzenegger uh, decision by the Federal District Court for the Northern District of California. In that decision, the court produced this so-called definition, quote, marriage is the state recognition and approval of a couple's choice to live with each other, to remain committed to one another, and to form a household based on their own feelings about one another, and to join in an economic partnership and support one another in any dependence. Close quote. Now, I'm not sure what level of hell this uh, so-called definition was vomited up from, but it's absolutely insane. Marriage is not the state recognition approval of a couple's choice to live with one another, to remain committed to one another, and to form a household based on their own feelings about one another, and to join an economic partnership and support one another in any dependence. That is not what marriage is. But the insanity didn't end there. A few of the more crazy points can't even be read from the pulpit. But here with some obvious editing are a few more gems that I've gleaned from that decision. The movement of marriage away from a gendered institution toward an institution free from state-mandated gender roles reflects an evolution in the understanding of gender rather than a change in marriage. No, it doesn't. Marriage hasn't moved away from a gendered institution and toward an institution free from state-mandated gender rules. Marriage hasn't moved at all. It hasn't budged an inch. The movement of so-called legal rulings from a basis in reality to a, towards a basis in perversity reflects the lack of understanding of basic concepts and advancing corruption in our society. I continue. Gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. Gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. This is like a court ruling that triangles no longer have to have three sides. And San Francisco couples are identical to true couples in the characteristics relevant to the ability to form successful marital unions. Oh yeah. They're identical to true couples in the characteristics relevant to the ability to form successful marital unions. Yes, of course, the moon is made out of green cheese. I mean, this is where we are in, in American jurisprudence. Consider these gems gleaned from the U.S. Supreme Court decision, and I'm mispronouncing it, Obergefell versus Hodge. This decriminalizes abominations over all these United States. 
Everything that we're going to hear was written by Catholics, by the way. We'll start with a quote from the dissenting opinion by the late Justice Scalia, who was a serious Catholic. But this quote is going to show you how far gone we are. This is a dissenting opinion, so he's against this stuff. Keep in mind this is from the dissenting opinion. Quote, the law can recognize as marriage whatever sexual attachments and living arrangements it wishes and can accord them favorable civil consequences from tax treatment to the rights of inheritance. The law can recognize as marriage whatever sexual attachments and living arrangements it wishes. I mean, seriously, what is wrong with these people? This is nuts. Is that true? Is it true that the law can recognize as triangles any plain figures it wishes? Think you can have four-sided triangles and eight-sided triangles and 16-sided triangles? Is that true? Of course it isn't true. Marriage has an objective reality, just like a triangle does. And that objective reality is there, no matter what some supposed law may or may not say. With dissenting opinions like that, it's small wonder we're in such big trouble. Consider this gem from the majority opinion, and I've limited myself here. This is written by Justice Kennedy. Now, quote, it demeans persons of a San Francisco persuasion to be locked out of a central institution of the nation's society. It would misunderstand these men and women to say that they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law." Close quotes. Now this is completely and utterly false. Now this, it's just absolutely essential to understand that no one has ever prevented these people from getting married. They've never been locked out of marriage. They've never been excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. And if anything of what I just said right there seems even the slightest bit surprising, then you need to listen very carefully to the rest of this sermon because it means that you're confused as to the actual nature of marriage as well. So we've seen what marriage is not, just what is marriage. Now some of what we'll talk about here may be tough to hear, but we're just going to assume that everyone here would rather hear saving truths than soothing lies. So what is marriage? The most basic fact about marriage is it was made by God. Consequently, God and only God makes the rules. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. If a man and a woman freely make this contract, then God makes the relationship. They consent to be man and wife, and then God makes it so. So what's the marriage contract? The contract with a, which a man and woman make, the contract which they both consent to in order to enter into the relationship of marriage is very clear. Here's the traditional description of the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. 
If it's properly made, validly made, this contract results in a relationship known as marriage. If they validly make the contract, God makes the relationship. And that's true whether or not they believe in God. It's reality. So just as someone is going to fall off, if he steps off a cliff, whether or not he, he believes in gravity, so also if a man and a woman validly make this contract, God will make that relationship whether or not they believe in him. So marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. In the marriage contract, a man and a woman give and accept perpetual exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. God attaches a consequence to making this contract. If the man and woman validly make this contract, they sleep on it. Then the two become related to each other, closer than a brother's related to a sister, closer than a father's related to his son, and that relationship is made directly by God. Marriage is most definitely not the state recognition, approval of a couple's choice to live with each other, to remain committed with, to one another and form a household based on their own feelings about one another. That's not marriage. And if you notice in the contract, it says nothing about feelings. Nothing. Nothing. You're not contracting for feelings when you contract for a marriage. Once we see that a marriage is contracted with a man and woman, give and accept, a perpetual exclusive act, right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generates of children, it's easy to see that these persons of San Francisco persuasion have never been prevented from getting married. That's not the problem at all. The problem is because they're perversions, they actually don't want to get married. Now let's just take a moment to consider the marriage contract. Both partners to the contract agree. That's why weddings work the way they do. The man and the woman are each asked if they agree to the contract. Each one must answer freely of his own accord. There are two witnesses to that contract on behalf of society, and the priest is there on behalf of the church. Precisely because it's a contract, if the contract's not properly entered into, no relationship results. If the contract is not validly made, God does not make the relationship. That's where an annulment fits in. An authentic annulment is a result of a couple not making a valid contract. For example, to validly contract marriage, Catholics, now we're talking about Catholics, we're not talking about uh, Protestants or non-Christians in this particular, I'm just using one example, but Catholics must either be married according to the canonical form or have a dispensation. What's the canonical form? It has to be in front of a, pr a priest or a deacon with delegation and in front of two witnesses. Okay, so if Catholics, and again, we're not talking about Protestants or non-Christians here, only Catholics. If Catholics attempt to get married before justice of the peace, then the contract wasn't properly made. That means the relationship didn't and couldn't come into being. It's a contract between a man and a woman. God only created two sexes, and they're not genders. They're sex. Genders a, a, a a concept that belongs to grammar. God created two sexes, male and female. He created them. It takes one of each to make a marriage. The term perpetual indicates the marriage contract results in a relationship with a specific condition that each partner yields marital rights perpetually. That shows indissolubility of the relationship. This right lasts for exactly one lifetime till death do us part. Quote, a declaration by the state that a husband and wife are no longer husband and wife, a declaration that is of divorce, 
is a mere form of words. The state can say that it has broken the marriage bond between two people, but has not broken it. During the lifetime of the parties, they remain husband and wife, because that is of the nature of marriage as ordained by God. The failure to understand this teaching of the Catholic Church has given rise to much quite irrelevant argument. Those who urge that the Church should grant, or at least at any rate permit divorce, always do so on the ground that in certain cases it is desirable. But to urge that a thing is desirable is no answer to the statement that it is impossible. And that is the precise truth. As a practical matter resulting from its being God-made, marriage is not indissoluble just because both parties at the wedding made vows of lifelong fidelity. It's indissoluble because it's marriage. Close quote Frank Sheep. In other words, divorce has no effect whatsoever on marriage. It's a mere form of words which at best only legally divides up properties of a couple who remain married, and consequently no one can date a divorced person for the simple reason that they remain married to their spouse. Marriage lasts until death. The relationship resulting from this contract is exclusive. The rights are exclusive, which means that each partner yields marital rights exclusively to the other partner, which shows the unity of the relationship. In other words, this means only one man and only one woman. No polygamy, none of this Henry VIII action. You don't get to keep trading in on a new model. This is it. He gave his word before the altar. God's going to hold it to him. Period. Close the book. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is a contract by which the man and woman give and accept rights for which acts for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. There are limits. The acts must be uh, of themselves suitable for a generation of children. No contraception, no sterilization, no refusal of a reasonable request. He gave his body away to his spouse before the altar, and it's no longer his to take back, and vice versa. Marriage is a relationship in which the acts are suitable for the generation of children. There's no contraception, no sterilization, and no refusal of a reasonable request. Finally, why? Did God create marriage? Why did God create marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? God created marriage with two specific purposes. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage is mutual help and comfort of the spouses and remedy for concupiscence. Okay, so why have we hammered on this? To make sure that everyone here has a solid grasp on exactly what marriage is. When virtually all the governments in the world, to say nothing of most of the bishops in the world, seem incapable of explaining or defending this, you know that we are in serious trouble, and we are. Had the bishops been preaching in season and out of season that marriage what is ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved by any human power, by any cause other than death. Had they been preaching in season and out of season in a clear and unambiguous manner, Christ's teaching with regards to marriage, the beauty of vocation, is a call for holiness, a man and his wife that requires embracing the cross, as well as the tough teachings, no divorce, the actual grounds for legal separation, the parameters of the marital act, the contraception is intrinsically evil, then we'd have far more babies in the world, far more happiness in the world, far more holiness in the world, 
far more vocations in the world, far more married people being saved. We'd have all that and more. We wouldn't have these nightmarish perversions being called marriage. We need to pray for the people that are tangled up in this. These kind of things are really hard for people that have those kind of orientations, and we have to pray for them, we have to reach out for them, but we have to tell people the truth. If you love people, you're going to tell them the truth. We have to love them enough to tell them the truth, even though it's painful. Because they've got to struggle. And they can be saved, but they can't be saved if they go the way of the world. They're doomed. They're doomed if they follow their appetites. We have to speak truth. So, if the bishops had preaching all these things in season, out of season, wouldn't have this nightmare, wouldn't have this horrific emotional cultural wreckage from so many destroyed families, so many destroyed lives. Most importantly, we wouldn't have what appears to be the eternal loss of so many immortal souls. We wouldn't have what appears to be the eternal damnation of so many immortal souls. Let's review. We've seen them when our Lord just turned 30 years old. He was baptized on January 6th, the same day, the 30 years before the three kings had visited him in the manger. After his baptism, he went out to the desert and fasted for 40 days. After he came back, he spent some time at home in Nazareth. On March 1st, the Jews asked St. John the Baptist if he were the Christ. He said no. On March 2nd, St. John pointed out our Lord, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. March 3rd, St. John repeated his testimony before St. Andrew, another disciple. St. Andrew then brought his brother St. Peter to Christ. On March 4th, our Lord called St. Philip. On March 5th, on the 60th day from his baptism, he went to the wedding feast. We've seen that the reason we commemorate these three mysteries on the Feast of the Epiphany, even though the water was actually turned into wine on March 5th, is because the whole point of the feast is to celebrate the manifestation of Christ to the world. Epiphany is a Greek word which means manifestation. So the reason we commemorate all three of these mysteries together is because these are the three miracles by which Christ first made himself manifest to the world. We've seen that the bridegroom was the apostle St. Simon the Canaanite, also known as St. Simon the Zealot, so-called because as soon as he had seen the miracle of water turning into wine, he became a zealous follower of Christ. We've seen that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. In the marriage contract, a man and woman give and accept perpetual exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. God attaches a consequence for making this contract. If the man and the woman validly make the contract, the two become more closely related to the other, their brother is related to his sister, closer than father is related to his son, relationship made directly by God. We've been confused on this for a long time. It's not a surprise we have these strange new forms of marriage because the church hasn't defended the concept of love that you can't get divorced. They haven't defended the concept that you can't uh, use contraception or sterilization. And if, that, if, if, you, if those two things are gone, then marriage becomes whatever you want it to be. It's no longer about the procreation and education of children. It is about feelings and doing things and whatnot. Why should we be surprised if people that like feeling things in a different way want to get in on that? All this is a logical progression from us not defending the truth in the first place. Let's close. Well, speaking at a conference in Rome last spring, late Cardinal Caffara explained that St. John Paul II had commissioned him to plan and establish the Pontifical Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. 
At the beginning of this work, the Cardinal wrote a letter to Sister Lucia of Fatima through her bishop, since he could not do so directly. The Cardinal, quote, inexplicably, since I did not expect a reply, seeing as it only to ask for her prayers, I received a long letter with her signature. In that letter, Sister Lucia wrote that, quote, the final battle between the Lord and the kingdom of Satan be about marriage and a family. Don't be afraid, she added, because whoever works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought against and opposed in every way, because this is a decisive issue. Then she concluded, nevertheless, Our Lady has already crushed his head. Close quote. The final battle between the Lord and the kingdom of Satan will be about marriage and a family. Don't be afraid, because whoever works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought against and opposed in every way because this is the decisive issue. And then the Cardinal stated, quote, what Sister Lucia said in those days is being fulfilled in these days of ours. Close quote. Well, with anyone with a lick of biblical understanding, it's easy to understand why it's going to be a fire, not a flood this time. And people use a rainbow as a symbol, like they're going to be saved. We got to pray. We really need to pray.